Hello and welcome to the Investors Chronicle Companies and Market Show. I am John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, joined today by Harriet Russell again. How are you doing, Harriet? Yeah, good, thanks, John. Busy week for retail. Very busy. Very exciting stuff. Yeah, some of it. <laughs> you guys meet Julian? I did. Yeah. More on that in a minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. And uh, Phil Oakley, how are you doing, Phil? Very good, thanks, John. Excellent. And we're going to talk about dodgy reporting metrics. Uh, that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's a hot topic at the moment. The FRC this week has actually uh, published a report on very, uh, exactly the same thing. And we're going to talk about some results. There's been some interesting results, which I think both you have covered, Harris, and you have covered, Phil, Marks and Spencer's among them. Um, right, let's get stuck in. Let's start with Julian. Julian <laughs> Dunkerton. Julian Dunkerton. Formerly of the parish of Superdry, <laughs> attempting to return to the parish of Superdry. Yeah, so um, he officially stepped back from the board in March. He had actually stepped back from chief executive duties four years ago, but had sort of remained on the board as kind of the brand visionary, for want of a better phrase. And uh, anyway, his uh, his departure was announced in March, and at the time, we and several other members of the press were peddled the line that he was going to focus on his charities, mm-hmm. which he does have a number of charitable kind of foundations and things like that. So I think most of us swallowed it, to be honest, because he had been, as I say, in the background for many years and um, the company had sort of taken on a new life under Ewan Sutherland. He took a lot of money out of the business at that point. Uh, It was actually a couple of months later. Right. Uh, So this was March and the share sale came um, in July, I believe. And yeah, it was huge. But not something we we couldn't have expected. But perhaps the scale of it was unexpected. Yeah. But you would have expected someone someone to leave the business. They're going to start... Start Start selling down. Right. And again, we phoned representatives of the company. But at the time, something just felt off to me. I had phoned the company representatives and they were very sort of sketchy about the whole thing. Um... They started passing when they start passing it around the PRs, and no one wants to give you a firm answer. I think your antenna should always go up, and mine did. So uh, about a month after that, I put it through our tips of the week sec- section as an official sell tip. The company's been doing very poorly; the operating margin is just absolutely decimated at the moment. And, and, and there was a trading update today. In fact, there was a pre-close, yeah, today, and same old, same old. To be honest, um, more of the more bad news. Um, what's interesting? It's very typical of retailers; they will announce a growth rate um, and Superdry do it for what's known as group branded revenue which is pretty straightforward. Sounds like one of those weird alternative performance metrics that (laughs) uh, we're going to talk about shortly. For Superdry it's actually a fairly simple business so you can you know unlike someone like Next for instance where you have to constantly be sort of sorting through well what's directory and what's a store sale and all of this Superdry although it does have a wholesale um, operation as well it is fairly simplistic so anyway they announced a growth rate this morning of 6.4% which if you're M&S great <laughs> if you're super dry and like i went through the rns this morning i went all the way back to last year because they did not put this comparison in the statement i went back to last year's rns same day last november and the growth rate was 25.2 a big slowdown then. big slowdown okay so so julian dunkerton has had enough does he still own any of the company 18.5 percent stake still chunky he's the largest shareholder okay and he's had enough yeah safe to say this was no exclusive in fact i think i pretty much opened the piece with that because he's been speaking to everyone who has a print or an online product to try and get his message out there that he wants to come back to the company fair play Mm -hmm. do we think he should go back to the company and do we think he has a chance of achieving what he's he's trying to do i think he will get back in 
He's already met with eight out of the 10 largest shareholders. And although Peter Bamford, who's the current chairman, has not pledged his support, I sort of feel like that's kind of a party line sort of whip issue. Eight out of the largest 10 shareholders and two activist fund managers as well, um, which the PR told me. So that was that's quite a lot of firepower to get behind. He's offering quite a lot of concessions as well. For instance, he says that if they allow him to return, then he will put the remainder of his shareholding into a lockup um, so that he sort of can renew his commitment to improving the performance of, of the shares. OK, so, so we still got them on a sell. Yeah. I mean, let's say Julian Dunkerton came back into the business. Um, do we like his ideas? What did he tell you? Any, any, you know, what is he going to do? Should he get back into the business? Yeah, the problem with people like Julian is that they're ideas people. He's the Steve Jobs of this operation. That's a good thing. It is quite a good thing. And that's why I think they probably would not do well to ignore him completely. Mm-hmm. Whether that means getting back... The problem with getting back onto the board is that it would have to be done probably through an emergency general meeting. And at that general meeting, Julian has said he is, quote, willing to work with anyone. But you and Sutherland and Ed Barker are going to have to fall on their swords and admit that they've got this wrong. So how do you do that and stay at the company? You don't. So then you're talking about an entire management overhaul and not just the return of Julian Dunkerton, are you? It's a loaded question. That's Messy the then. Messy. Messy. So we're still sellers, basically. We're sellers on the basis that nothing changes. You know, if, as of, I say in the piece, affairs as they stand, this business is, is going downhill. But complete management overhaul? We know for a fact that there's precedent that sometimes that can work wonders. So... We'll wait and see. Yeah. No, it's a very interesting uh, story, which I'm sure we will continue to cover in yeah. the weeks ahead. It's going to get interesting. You also refer in the piece to um, a couple of other big retailers who are trying to reinvent themselves as well. Next, who has some nu- horrible numbers, which you spoke about last week, Marks and Spencers, who had some results this week. Mm. And I, I think you've written about them as well, haven't you, Phil? I have, yes. Marks and Spencers, we know they've had some problems in their general merchandising division for some time, i.e. clothing and, and homewares, mainly clothing. But the problem this week is food, which has been their saviour for so long, is is struggling. Yeah, to say that it's this week is unfair. Food actually started to turn at the beginning of the year. Um, okay, but it's come to a head this week. Yeah, it's well, it's really starting to show up in some of the numbers now and drag the entire business with it, which, you know, beforehand we were just looking at sort of a quarterly performance and thinking, oh God, you know, food's starting to slip. But yeah, you're right. I mean, and particularly Steve Rowe, I mean, as the new chief executive, he was hailed as the saviour of food through the recession. Mm. He was head of their food business. So for it to be slipping on his watch is even more quarterly for concern Do you know I, I, I'm a great fan of scuttlebutts and mm. uh, late last night after a press day pint I went into Marks and Spencers at Liverpool Street and there was nothing on the shelves literally nothing on the shelves I mean that is not a good sign to me No and I think the the offering hasn't been as updated as it once was in in the general sort of conscious I mean for instance sustainability is a huge issue in retail and at the moment they're coming out one of the worst. What you mean in terms of the packaging. plastic? Oh, the yeah. pas- their packaging is appalling. You, yeah. you haven't for years been able to recycle anything that Marks and Spencers have, yeah. uh, have, have packaged their uh, It's all black plastic, in. that's the point. And although that might sound like a little thing and you're thinking, well, how does that filter into a financial performance? It's because it's not resonating with a customer. And mm. I think you said at one point not too long ago, you know, if you really pay attention to what they're selling, it's glorified ready meals. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. again, that's not speaking to a hugely healthy, conscious, young millennial customer. Anymore, so. in, in a world where we care about straws, mm. 
you know, this stuff is starting to matter. It really Increasingly is. so. Yeah. Phil, let's talk, not human nonsense scuttlebutt. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm all for it, actually. I'm all for it. <laughs> o- Oakley, fierce analysis. No, 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 I think Harriet's raised a very good point. I think this, I think the problem with Marks and Spencers is it's actually com- completely out of touch. Mm. It's completely out of touch on food and on clothing. Uh, I think, uh, I think on food, I think it's, it's 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 almost like an emperor's new clothes where you know for years people have held up marks and spencers as a sort of bastion of quality and if you actually look what's going on within the food retailing sector is all the other supermarkets have raised their game and you know what you were buying in marks and spencers a few years ago thinking you were buying something special um you can go to all the other supermarkets and buy this for a lot less mm. and i think that they are it's a very, very slow-moving organisation. Everything is slow. Everything is behind the curve. You know, if you look at the, the supply chain, the logistics, the internet site, and I think on clothing, I think they, they lost the battle on clothing a long time ago, and I think it's very difficult for them to, to come back from it. There are so many different choices now for consumers across the age range, across the style range, that Marks & Spencer's got to compete with. And I think that it's 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 they're in a very difficult position strategically. The one saving grace on this, or the one ray of hope, shall we say, is that the share price implies a lot of this. Um, the company is not in any imminent danger of going bust or anything like that. It's generating a lot of cash flow. There's a very tight rein on 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 capital spending, investment spending. It's throwing off a lot of cash. Debt is coming down. Um, but they're not investing a lot of cash, really. They're not, no. I mean, the high street, they're closing stores, in fact. They're closing stores, so a lot of that cash gets thrown back. And also a lot of their working capital projects came to a came to an end a couple of years ago. So again, a lot of that sort of, yeah, free cash is just not tied up in, mm. in reinvestment right now. But, you know, they have announced a whole string of digital initiatives. So we might see that turn, you know, within the next year to 18 months, we might see the announcement of some more kind of capital projects again which you know for income seekers who who flood into marks and spencers for that reason cheap stock big yield chunky dividend yeah exactly but you know if they're suddenly going to tie up a lot of that cash reinvesting into digital innovation you're going to ask well how well supported is that dividend going to be then in in the near term at least i think i think at the moment the dividend's safe you know i think if you look at the free cash flow yield free cash flow yield on this company as of last night was pretty close to 10 percent and so, the, and the dividend yield is just over six percent. So there's enough free cash flow being generated to pay the dividend for Marks and Spencers. I think what a lot of people are asking with Marks and Spencers now is that is this a business that's been so woefully uninvested that actually they should stop being a slave to the dividend and actually cut the dividend and free up some cash flow and spend some much needed money in the business. But what do they do? I mean, so this, I mean. People who are invested in Marks and Spencers like that dividend. You went, you went to the. I was just going to say you went we, to the um, the big old AGM. We did, yeah. Megan and I, before she left us, we went to the AGM in uh, the start of the summer. 
I expected to see exactly what you've just said, which is we just sort of canvassed opinion, really, of people going in, retail shareholders. And I expected them to say the same. Oh, I hang on for the dividend. I hang on for the dividend. Some of them did. But the vast majority have a very emotional connection to this business on a sort of British pride sort of thing. And I actually do think that if Archie Norman and Steve could sort of pull a narrative together that was really convincing. We're going to cut the dividend. We're going to cut it because this is what we need to do to survive. But we're going to make the company much better. Indeed. Then I think people might take it, actually. If they can come back, say, look, we've freed up this money by cutting the dividend and we're going to put this money in this this area, that area, and this is what we're looking to achieve with it, I think share price go up. Mm. Interesting. Extremely interesting. Don't get me started on the vegan options. (laughs) <laughs> sorry. sorry i could a friend of mine counted 69 sandwiches rolls on offer for lunch only one vegan option mm. and again it's another example mm. of them being behind the trends yeah that's just obvious stuff i yeah. I, I don't know you, you just wonder whether this business has got the obvious stuff right but if it, if it is obvious stuff then it could be easily fixed exactly and at the agm again we said to a number of the shareholders what what do you want to see them do and a, and a good chunk of them said there is no one young in this business there is no no millennial voice anywhere near the board taking any decisions or even providing any kind of perspective on strategy so that might be an interesting thing for them to explore as well and try and get some sort of young vision sort of into the brand Mm. It's funny because Martha Lane Fox of LastMinute.com, you know, the UK's most high-profile internet entrepreneur, has been on the board of Marks and Spencer. I don't know if she still is, but, you know, they've tried this before. It hasn't really worked. And No, and the person that they've got in charge of, of the women's wear sort of collections now is Jill McDonald, who people might recognise from Halford. She was the chief executive there for less than a year before taking this job. And you just think... Bikes, clothes. It's <laughs> <Okay. laughs> all the same, isn't it? Enough of Marks and Spencer. We've yeah. got them on a hold, which I think is... I think that's probably a fair reflection of the fact that there is potential to fix this business. There's potential, but I... But it's just not being done yet. T- trying to pick out a near-term catalyst for a re-rating right now? I don't... Operationally speaking, I don't know what that would be. I think you're quite right. Um, there were some figures uh, talking of food from Morrison this week. We haven't covered them in detail in the magazine, but they are mentioned in the seven days section. Uh, I think you wrote about them in your, your newsletter, didn't you, Phil? I have done, yeah. I, I quite like Morrison's. Uh, I oh, I know you drive to Chelmsford to go. <laughs> to Malden, I <laughs> to do. Malden. I do. Sorry, to Malden, I, yeah, where I live, uh, I, to do your, your I shopping. I think this business has been turned around really quite nicely by um, David Potts. I think, you know, the guy's the ex-Tesco guy, and I think he's just... We know, we just talked a while ago about Marks and Spencers and the basics. I think that's what Morrison's has done. I think Morrison's has gone back to good old-fashioned basic retailing. He's selling good products, good prices, good shelf availability, and, you know, things like no queues at checkouts. You know, the in-store execution of what they've been doing has done well. And they've had three years of consecutive like-for-like sales growth. And the profits have gone up, the cash generation's been good, and this week it's come to a little bit of a slowdown. But, but it's, actually, been a, it's been a very strong recovery for a number of years. Very strong recovery. So, I mean- Share price has gone up quite nicely, but we've had special dividends... It's 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 in a, in a bad industry. It's not been a bad share to own. One thing I would say, I mean, I, I agree. Having been to to Walden's, Morrison's, your favourite, you're grinning grocery retailer. <laughs> um, but but Tesco has done the same. 
Sainsbury's has done the same. There are numbers today. The problem with Sainsbury's, of course, is that since the middle of this year, it's been in complete sort of blackout in terms of people knowing what to do with it because it could be about to go through the most life-changing merger it's probably ever done. Mm. So, you know, even the interims today, they're pretty good. They're showing that Argos is contributing nicely. We talked about that the last time they had numbers on this podcast. Um, But no one knows what's going to happen with the merger. So everyone's just sort of sitting tight. And even though the numbers are are a decent reflection today, in my opinion, um, the share price is completely flat. Yeah, but I mean, certainly Tesco is is a much better shopping experience than it was before the the, the hideous crisis that it suffered in its share price a few years back. I I, I think the whole industry has upped its game, which is perhaps why Marks and Spencer is struggling. As yeah, you, as you I mean, said. As, uh, well, exactly. As Phil said, they've they've had to, you know, with when you get the German discounters at one end and Amazon I love at the, the other. German discounters. <laughs> <laughs> well, and people like Amazon and Whole Foods and stuff at the other. You know, your industry is going through some significant structural change, and if you don't do anything about it, like Marks and Spencer's arguably hasn't, then you get left behind pretty quickly. And Morrison's, I think, is a really interesting one because. With the exception of their wholesale and supply agreement with Amazon, they obviously haven't taken part in huge M&A activity. We, of course, have just glossed over the fact that Tesco's gone through this mega takeover of of Booker and completely changed its business through that as well um, in order to take on, you know, Amazons of this world. Mm. So whether I think Phil mentions this in his weekly roundup, and I agree that, you know, in the future, Morrison's could well be a target for Amazon in terms of a takeover, much more so, in my opinion, than Ocado, Mm. which I know has been mooted in the past. I'm glad you mentioned Ocado. Alternative profit metrics. Yeah, I think it's all getting rather silly now. And I think if you, I think if you, especially if you look at the smaller end of the stock market, particularly AIM companies, um, I think there's a lot of nonsense being talked about what actually profit is. And all these different adjusted calculations of profits, the literal sort of splattering over RNSs of EBITDA, which is, never has been, never will be a measure of prof- proper profit. And all the adjustments that are going on, uh, and I just think that um, companies are taking the proverb- Taking the Michael? Taking the proverbial. Taking the proverbial. I actually, I, I pulled out a quote from your, um, your piece for the seven days quotes this week. And I have to say, it's probably... I picked out the most extreme quote I could find. (laughs) For some companies, the message seems to be, ignore the bad stuff, costs, and concentrate on the good bits, profits. And it's incredible to think that those two things don't work in tandem. Indeed. Uh, But this seems to be the case. Yeah, anything that costs money that they can try and say, look, don't worry about this, this is a one-off, ignore it, we're actually doing really well, Uh, it it doesn't wash with me. Because quite often these things then crop up again year after year after year, and I just think I mentioned a couple of couple of items, and, and I appreciate this can be quite a dry subject, so I won't talk too long about oh, no, it. No, no, accounting is the wonderfully most wonderfully interesting subject. <laughs> but but, it, no, no, this, but this know, is really important. It's important because you know, as an investor, you want to know what your slice of the pie is, and what's what's actually going on is that companies are trying to tell you actually it's bigger than it actually really is. And I think two things, particularly, and I think that the treatment of share option costs, share-based payments, so many companies now seem to be saying that this is not a real cost. Um, it beggars it beggars belief. It is a real cost. It's a transfer of value away from the shareholder. It may not be 
in terms of a timing issue, immediate, but it is a transfer of value away. Well, take, take uh, well, the obvious, obvious high-profile example this week, Persimmon. I mean, that is an extraordinary cost of a share-based payment scheme. That has real, real impact on, on, on what comes back to shareholders. Yeah, I think there's a separate issue altogether, <laughs> altogether there in terms of it's more of an ethical than an accounting issue. But it's both. But it is both. It is, but bo- it, it is it both. Is both. But the ethical issue is obviously an important yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. Um, d- just to clarify, Persimmon has paid a huge amount of money to its directors through these kind to of... To its chief executive in particular. And he's resigned this week. He's been kicked out. He's been actually been... Let's not split hairs here. You know, he's... the. the he was initially there was a a share option, you know, a bonus scheme set up in 2012, and for the last five or six years, house building companies have made unbelievable amounts of money for lots of different reasons, but mainly because the government has put a nice subsidy into the into the mortgages that people buy their houses with in the form of help to buy. And Persimmon, which sells every other house as part of this scheme, has been the main be- beneficiary, and its chief executive was awarded a bonus of £110 million under this long-term incentive plan. And he gave £35 million of it back and said, I'll only take 75 And I think this issue came to a head, what, two weeks ago? With the, t- a, the famous TV interview. The famous Look North interview. Oh, it was such which a... Was, which is all there on the internet, and if you haven't seen it, I recommend you go and watch it, because I think it spells the spells the issue out very nicely. And I think uh, the Jeff Fairburn's uh, bonus has become such an embarrassment to the company now that um, the, the company have essentially decided that they, they, they have to part company. Mm. I think in the RNS they used the word distraction, didn't they? Yeah, mm. yeah. It, I mean... Yeah, help, help to buy in particular, and it is a bit of a pet hate of mine, which I won't rant on about. But it, it it's a very sensitive issue now for the building companies because they are extremely profitable. I mean, I, I struggle to think of an industry actually that is making the kind of profit margins and return on investment that these these guys are making with the help of taxpayers' money. Let's let's not get away from this. The, you know the building companies and their lobbyists will argue until they're blue in the face that it isn't. But if you look at the hard facts and look at the studies of house price inflation, new build premiums, this is definitely the case in my view. And you know, if you, I find it very strange, you know, we're in an environment where British gas that's making absolute peanuts in terms of profit margins is subject to an energy price cap, along with all the rest of the industry. But the house building industry is allowed to make unbelievable amounts of money with the help of taxpayer cash. Uh, and then distribute large chunks of that and to, to its directors. And distribute large amounts of cash to its directors and its shareholders. This story will run. I, th- I think you're right. That, incidentally, is the, the lead uh, news story this week. We've gone off on a bit of a mad tangent. Let's go back to uh, alternative profit measures, one of obviously which is uh, adjusting for incentive payments yep. uh, using shares. What, what are the other big things we should be watching out for as, uh, as investors? When looking at the accounts, companies not being entirely honest about how much money they're making. Yeah, I think, I think there, are, there are a few. I mean, the other one is the amortisation of intangible assets, such as brands, customer lists. Um, I've mentioned YouGov in the article that um, has a huge 
intangible amortization expense but also if you look at the cash flow statement has a huge cash outflow every year to maintain those intangible assets and it's telling investors that you should ignore the intangible amortization but at the same time showing people in clear clear view that it spends a lot of cash on them so this this is uh, amortization is essentially it's, the depreciation of non non fixed assets. It's spreading. It's the spreading of the cost of intangible assets such as patents, brands, customer lists, uh, things like IT software, those kind of issues. Which and a lot of them actually are real cash expenses. The company has to spend money on those to maintain that. So for to company, generate to generate the sales and the profits that it goes on so to make for you, Gav. Uh, the lists are at the centre of what it does. The software that analyses those yeah. lists is at the centre yeah, of what it the does. Cu- the customer, the customer portal, the customer list, and the IT—they underpin the very foundations of this business. And yet, the amortisation expense—they're saying, "No, nope, don't worry about that. That's not that's not part of profits. Ignore that. We're actually making a lot more money than you think." But actually, you go into the cash flow statement which in so many instances you find out the real truth of a company, and there is pretty much an identical outflow of cash um, on on intangible assets. So how they can say this isn't a real expense, I, I, I've no idea. And this is something that, you know, not just... There are other people out there who have made this point. F- the FRC being one of them Yeah, this and, week. And, and others. Um, and, but up until recently, this hasn't stopped the share price of UGUB going up. Yeah, you also mentioned buybacks. Yeah, buy- I, I'm kind of because these are kind of good and bad. And buybacks, buybacks work when, in very simple terms, when the company buys back its shares for less than they are worth. The problem with buybacks is that they have an impact on earnings per share, which is what a lot of company management bonus schemes are related to and also a number that is fixated upon by analysts the financial press and so on it's very very easy in a low interest world to enhance earnings per share by by buying back shares so so some of the biggest buybackers a bit next 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 is a good example i i think next wh smith are very good examples of companies that have used buybacks well um one of the problems with buybacks obviously is it it it's not anything to do with the trading performance of the business you know that it's if the shops that you run don't make more profit but you can shrink the number of shares in issue and increase earnings per share it's not unreasonable to say well isn't that just a bit of financial engineering going on I'm not saying it's not always positive, but in some cases it isn't. The other thing to bear in mind with buybacks, which I mentioned in the article, is that um, a lot of buybacks are actually done not to shrink the number of shares, but actually to stop the number of shares growing because of all the shares that are being given out in in pay awards and long-term plans. So it's to stop the dilution of existing shareholders. So what's happening is that companies are using money that they could have paid out to shareholders to stop them being diluted. Now, some people... By money that they may have paid out to directors. Yeah. (laughs) And some people might say that's fine. But um, I say, okay, if you say that's fine, uh, you know, there's an argument for that, but don't base your management bonuses on earnings per share then. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, we we cover... um, 
corporate remuneration quite a lot through our no free lunch column paul jackson's i mean he's looked at this quite a lot yeah i mean it, it does seem a system that's being abused a little bit at the moment and you know the frc which is under a lot of pressure post carillion this kind of should be what it's doing i would say but uh i think there's a lot of a lot of issues that you know maybe a few years ago you thought were getting better but perhaps perhaps we need to go and have a look at these things again now. Indeed, and I think we will. And I think we will. Um, the other big story this week that uh, we're running out of time, I'm afraid. Uh, the other big story we've, uh, we have we picked up on in the news section this week was Weatherspoon, which I know you've also looked at. You quite like this story here. They've basically said that their profits are going to fall this year. But they've done it in such a clever way. He's such a clever man, isn't he? This is this is genius PR. I would say. I, this company has many detractors for many different reasons. And um but actually if you look at the cold hard facts, it's been the best operator in the pub sector for a long time now. It's been able to get increasing number of sales out of its existing pubs better than anybody else in the sector. And it's it's been a very very well managed business and yeah you know you look at the statement and it says oh it's going to be what i don't know i can't remember the exact words but it's only going to be a little profits are only going to be a little bit below because wage costs are going up which is a big issue for this kind of sector and also retail retail well. yeah, absolutely retails as well yeah but you see weatherspoons say look we're not going to pass on these extra costs by increasing the prices of food and drink in our pubs and yet profits and not going to, from what I read the statement, yes, they're going to be below last year, but not by much, based on, based on where we see the lie of the land now. And actually, this could be a very shrewd competitive decision mm. because Weatherspoons is in a damn sight better position than a lot of its peers who will probably have to rise, raise prices. And Weatherspoons then becomes more attractive vis-a-vis the competition. So this could actually work out quite well. Could we see something similar happening in retail? Who might be the... Uh... Who might be the Weatherspoons of retail in terms of saying to its staff and its customers, we're going to pay you better and we're going to make sure you get the value you expect from us? Well, I would say probably only in the discount end of the sector. So um, people like B&M, for instance, where you can sort of categorically bank on the idea that volume will make up for most of the shortfall. Which is, which is, which is Weatherspoons' model, basically. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But Weatherspoons have done this for years. I mean, it, didn't, it doesn't really matter what the cost is that's going up, whether it's inflation, whether it's wages, whether it's a foreign currency issue, whether it's in, internal investment. I mean, they told me a few years ago they were going to spend £8 million on um, changing the way that they store glasses because they wanted aesthetically it to look sort of posher, I guess, in in the in the um, venues. So this isn't a company that's afraid of taking a hit, I would say, on their margin for whatever reason, as long as it keeps the punters coming in their droves, because they're confident that if they can keep the sales volumes up, the damage will ultimately be minimal. Interesting. Volumes. It's all about volumes. It really is. And, and that's a- why I would say, you know, if you're, if you're trying to draw a comparison in retail as opposed to leisure, you've got to find a business that's big on volume. Yeah, very interesting indeed. We've run out of time. Thank you, Harriet. Thank you, Phil. Um, There is loads in the magazine this week. It's been quite a busy week. And and actually, having put this magazine to bed last night, we didn't talk about the next issue for an hour. Because when we did, it was thoroughly depressing. 35 results next week. It's getting busy again. Um, Just in the run-up to Christmas. Lovely. Um, But there you go. There is loads in the magazine. We look at Persimmon, as uh, as we've already discussed. ITV has some numbers out this week. Not looking uh, massively great on the advertising front there. 
in the outsourcing sector, we've had news from G4S and Babcock. Loads in the personal finance fund section, um, which they will discuss on their podcast tomorrow. Um, alongside Phil, we have uh, Simon Thompson and Nicole and Chris. We haven't even talked about the cover feature, which uh, was written by James Norrington this week. It's a bit of myth-busting about market makers and, uh, and whether they really are rigging the market against private investors. We've got John Barron. We've got a, a big piece about oil uh, and where the prices might be going. Actually, a lot of action this week on the oil front. Anyway, loads of the magazine this week. The truth about market makers. Uh, is small cap share trading really rigged against private investors? Available in all good news agents. And we will be back again next week. Speak soon.